Welcome back to 90 Days New. Today we are in the book of Revelation. And while it is the last book in the New Testament, it is not the last book in our reading plan. We still have Matthew in front of us. But we are going to look at how our Bible concludes and talk a little bit about one of the most challenging books in the Bible. Uh, Revelation, as most of you know, has a reputation of having so many interpretations that it sometimes makes your head spin trying to think about how you should even approach this book. And so I want to provide just some guidelines maybe and uh, maybe uh, some boundaries within which we can interact with this text. And I want to begin by talking about genre. Genre is a reference to literary classifications. And uh, we could use the word genre to talk about musical classifications as well, and such as if I could talk about the genre of rock and roll, the genre of classical music, the genre of hip-hop country. I mean, there are different types of music, and if you were to turn on a radio station that was identified with one of those genres, you would have expectations. And so if I'm going to go read a book and listen to music, I want classical music. And my expectation is that there won't be any words, there won't be any heavy um, banging of drums and cymbals and electric guitar solos. I'm, I have an expectation for that genre. Well, the same thing is true with literary genres. When you come to a book like Revelation, you are dealing with apocalyptic literature, and there are certain expectations when you come to a book like that. Whereas if you were to go to like wisdom literature, your expectation would to be uh, to hear some general principles that are usually true in life. They're not the same as promises. If I were to go to uh, one of the didactic uh, literary genres, such as Paul's teaching, I might expect some promises and some commands. I don't expect that in wisdom literature. And when I go to the book of Proverbs, I understand that there are general principles that I can live by that usually are true, but not guaranteed. So if I work hard, I usually will end up with more money than if I were to be lazy. But sometimes that's not true. Some lazy people get rich because they inherit things. So there's an exception to the rule. Some Hard workers end up poor because of exceptions to the rule, like famine or you know disease or something like that. So general principles don't always come true, but most of the time they do. And that's what you can expect from that genre. Whereas if Paul says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, that's a promise. And I know that because of the genre I'm in. But coming back to Revelation, the genre of apocalyptic literature is very graphic. It's very symbolic. Uh, at times, it seems like it's speaking in terms that can't possibly be true in a literal sense, and there are other books in the Bible that have apocalyptic literature inside of them, like the second half of Daniel and the book of Zechariah. And so you get seven-headed dragons, and you get people's eyes glowing, and different colored hair, and green horses, and uh, great whores that drink people's blood. I mean, it, it's very, like, in-your-face graphic. And uh, it's sometimes exciting and thrilling to read, but not always easy to interpret. And so the best way to interpret this book uh, is understanding that genre, understanding that there's going to be some figurative language that you have to weed through, and also understanding that Revelation does not come up with these symbols just out of the blue, but usually is referencing back to other portions of the Bible. So if you understand the references, you can go back to the easier to understand passages of scripture 
and find out what it is talking about. And that will give you some meaning as you go through the book. So let's take a look at some of the opening passages just to get the context of how this book is being framed. It starts out by introducing uh, that this is a revelation of Jesus Christ and that God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Now, I want to emphasize that soon, because as you go through this book, you'll see the word soon and near mentioned multiple times, and it kind of flies in the face of the common approach to Revelation, which is to view this as an end times discussion. Well, if we go back to this revelation, that was 2,000 years ago. And so to say that everything in this book is still waiting to be fulfilled would really be to reduce that word soon down to a lie. I mean, that's that's not soon at all, 2,000 years later. So probably the best thing to do when we look at this book is to understand that a lot of what is said is about the early church. It was given to the early church. They were to interpret it, and they were to hear it and to be blessed by it. In fact, chapter or verse 3 says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. That's something we don't really do today as a cultural um practice, we have sermons and we might read the text and then preach on it. But in the early church, they would have read this out loud and that would have been the service. They would have just read the book. And so they, whoever hears these words read out loud, they're blessed by hearing it and keeping it. And then it says, for the time is near. So you need to hear what it says. You need to do what it says because the time is near. And that phrase, the time is near, really sounds like it's echoing some of the things Jesus said when he was preaching the kingdom. He says the kingdom has come near. Mark 1.15 is a reference to that and shares some of the similar language. And so this is what is demanded of the people who read this book, to hear it and do it because it's not just a look what's about to happen book or look what's going to happen in the future book. It's a book about how we should be living in the current situation. And the current situation is uh, actually full of both victory and trial. And we'll talk about some of that here in just a minute. Uh, but I want to move to verse 4 real quick, and it brings up the seven churches that are in Asia. Now, some have interpreted the seven churches as being seven distinct eras in the church age. So the church of Ephesus in chapter 2, the first church mentioned would be the early church age. And then as you move through the various churches, you are going through the timeline of the church age before you get to the second coming of Christ. I don't believe that view. I don't think there's a lot to hang um, that view on in the text. I think that's using a lot of creative license. And all of the views today have to use a little bit of creative license since this is such a challenging book and since, since there is so much symbolism involved. Um, but I really just don't see any reason to divide up the churches into ages like that. It seems that Jesus is giving commands to literal churches on the earth. There is actually a church in Ephesus that he is speaking to. There is an actual church in Philadelphia. He even name drops. He names people and, and talks about specific instances in those churches that I think are very much congruent with um, situations that would have happened historically at that time. And um, while I do believe in the his historicity of those seven churches and believe that this was a literal um, command and instruction to those seven churches, I think the number seven 
should cause us to stop and think, okay, wait a minute, is there more to it than that? Uh, because the number seven is symbolically representative of being complete and being full. We go back to the six days of creation, and it's the seventh day that God rested. We go into the law, and it says that on the seventh day, everybody should rest. And then every seventh, seventh day, there should be um, there's a special rest, and there's a year of jubilee that's divisible by seven. We look through the Old Testament, and the number seven is very significant, so it should not surprise us that it shows up here in apocalyptic literature that often relies on established numbers and events and, and principles. And so we look back and see that seven is representing completeness in the Old Testament, so it should represent completeness here in our interpretation of this book. So while I do believe that it's seven literal churches, I think it also symbolically means that all churches need to be aware of this, the temptations that show up in these seven churches, um, the victories that are promised to these seven churches, what's promised to them is promised to us, and what they should be aware of, we should be aware of, because um, history has a tendency to repeat itself often. Some of the things they struggled with, we're struggling with today. So as you read through it, make sure that you understand it was written to a historical group of people, but it also could be something that falls in our lap as well. And if you have that tendency to believe the division of eras, then you wouldn't interpret it that way. You would think that whatever's said about Ephesus has nothing to do with you because you're not in that era anymore. And I think that's dangerous. I think it's dangerous because some of the things said to the church at Ephesus is uh, <laughs> that it's very important for us. It says that God cannot bear with those who are evil and uh, he cannot bear with those who call themselves apostles and are not false apostles, false prophets. We've got that today in our era. Uh, he knows that they're enduring patiently and bearing up for uh, his name's sake, and they've not grown weary. But he has this against them, that they abandoned the love that they had at first. Well, I think we can be guilty of that as well. We can fall in love with Christ and be passionate with him, and then over the years begin to lose that love. Even though we've stood up against evil, and even though we hold the Bible dear, we can lose the passion that exists underneath the belief. And if you believe that this is just a reference to the early church, that first era of Christianity, you won't apply any of these things to your current situation. And I think you're missing the mark there. And uh, so keep that in mind as you interpret this. Don't, um, don't ignore the fact that this is actually for us to hear for the, the here and now, not just for the early church or just to be a future reference for some of the churches that are representative of future ages. On that same note, I would say that the seven spirits is not a literal seven different spirits moving around, but rather is the complete spirit. It's a reference to the complete spirit that was poured out on people on the day of Pentecost, believers, after Jesus died and rose again. It was the promise that he made to the disciples that he would send his comforter or advocate, or uh, depending on which translation you use, he is sending his paraclete. As the Greek word, the one who's going to walk alongside of them and is going to lead them into righteousness. And so it's a completeness of that. There's no 
additional spirit left to be poured out. This is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies that there was going to be an outpouring of the Spirit of God. And so we have that now. And that's why it's a seven spirits, a reference to that. Also, the seven lampstands is a reference to the Old Testament uh, can, uh, or candle that was in the holy place. Um, the menorah, as they call it, it had seven different almond-blossomed um, arms that were filled with oil and they would be burned and the light was supposed to continuously burn so that they could see. It often represents the Holy Spirit. They would pour out oil on people's heads in the Old Testament to anoint them uh, because the Spirit of God would come upon them like King David. And so oil and spirit sort of have some connected imagery throughout the Old Testament. And the same is true here. We have the seven spirits, we have the seven lampstands that are going to be filled with the oil, and it represents really the churches. And that's what uh, Revelation 1.20 says. It's the angel of the churches. And so these churches are the stars in Jesus' hand, it makes mention of, in verse 16. And these seven stars are... A fulfillment, I believe, of Daniel chapter 12, verse 3. In Jan Daniel 12, verse 3, it makes reference to those who believe being the righteousness of God that shines like the sun and like the stars eternally. And so each of these churches represent believers who have put their faith and trust in Christ, and now they are like a city on a hill. They are a light shining. And just like Jesus' face is said to shine like the sun here in verse 16, so do the believers in a um, maybe metaphorical way. We are shining. We're not physically shining, but we are shining the light of Christ as we go through the world, preaching and teaching and representing him and his kingdom, which uh, I think one of the really important things we need to see here in this is back in verse 5. In verse 5, it says that Jesus Christ is the ruler of the kings on earth. The ruler of the kings on earth. Not that he will be the ruler of the kings on earth. This isn't just talking about the millennial reign that some believe is a future thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. But it's saying that he is the ruler of kings on earth. Right here, right now. And furthermore, he has made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father in verse 6. And then it says, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. You see, Jesus reigns right now. His kingdom has already come, in a sense. It's not completely here, and it has not reached consummation. It's not reached the, uh, the era where there will no longer be sin in the world. That's coming. Um, but it is already here, and it really is here. When Christ came, he brought his kingdom. He told his disciples that the kingdom was in their midst. And so the kingdom had arrived in the person of Christ, and now those of us who put their, our faith and trust in him have been made a kingdom of priests to God. And so we now are living out underneath his reign and living out a life that is shining his light. And this goes back to Genesis. When Adam and Eve were created, they were to have dominion over the earth. But when Satan tempted them to sin, they became beneath him. And so he became the ruler. He was the one who ruled over the earth. Maybe it's one of the reasons he wanted them to fall so that he could be the ruler. Because prior to that, Adam and Eve were the rulers. They had the dominion. But now Satan is called the ruler of this world in various places in the New Testament. And we are 
slaves to him until we are freed by Christ. And so when Christ frees us through his blood, we are no longer slaves to sin, but we become sons and daughters of the most high king and the high priest. So now we are little kings and little priests for God the Father through Christ. And now we have been restored to our work of dominion. And that dominion comes through doing the work of God. And that work of God comes through uh, sharing the word and advancing his truth. We see this back in verse 16 again. It says that not only are the stars in his hand, but from his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. Now, I know some of you probably have been trained to interpret this book literally, and then you're thinking about when Jesus is going to show up and he's going to open his mouth and this sword is going to come out of his mouth like really creepily, and it's going to slice and dice people into a million pieces. It's going to chop up the enemies, and all that's going to be left are the righteous. And we read about that kind of event in chapter 19. But I think if you go back into previous material, you find that the two-edged sword is not as animated. It's more of a reference to the Word of God. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it says that the Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. It's the same word, sharper than any two-edged sword, and it's for um, you know, dividing soul and spirit and convicting people of sin. It, it's there to bring transformation. And that's what we are called to do. We are shining the light of Christ, metaphorically. We are shooting the sharp two-edged sword out of our mouth, metaphorically. Uh, we are, in Ephesians 6, supposed to put on the armor of God, metaphorically. And we are to have the sword of the Lord, and, and so we're taking the word of God through the spirit of God to the people around us and fighting back darkness so that God's light can prevail. That's why we're the stars. That's why we are shining just like he is shining. We are proclaiming the word of truth just like he's proclaiming the word of truth. That's why we get to be a kingdom of priests just like he is the high priest. Um, so we're kind of little Christ. That's what the word Christian means in this world. He has overcome, he's victorious, and he's using us to go into the world and to bring transformation. I think if you miss that, then you sort of miss everything else that's going to unfold in this book. As he goes through each church in chapter 2 and 3, he talks about the one who overcomes, and he's talking about us because we are overcomers because we have tasted victory in Christ. We are now the ones who have dominion. Now, the devil doesn't like it. He's going to fight back, and we're going to talk more about that in some uh, future episodes if we get a chance to get to those. Um, but as you look at this uh, book, you need to understand that not everything's literal, and most interpretation needs to be derived from previous writings because Revelation borrows a lot. I'm going to finish with one last statement here. In verse 9, it says, I, John, your brother, and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos. John is saying that he is the partner of the recipients of this letter, the early church, that he was a partner in the tribulation and the kingdom. See, John is saying that the kingdom's already here and he's a partner in it. Jesus has made a kingdom of priests, and he's one of those priests. He's in that kingdom right here, right now, in the first century. It's not a future kingdom. It's a present kingdom. And then 
he makes the statement that he's a partner in the tribulation, not a tribulation. The definite article is present in the Greek. This is the tribulation. And so too often we come to the book of Revelation and we think about a coming kingdom and a coming tribulation. And John's saying, listen, I've already been you know, persecuted. I've already seen all my friends killed. All the disciples have been martyred. He's already been dipped in boiling oil, according to church tradition, and he's been left on the Isle of Patmos to rot. Tribulation is here for John, and he sees what he's going through and what the early church is going to go through and uh, what Christianity is going to go through through the history of the church. They are going to endure persecution. We endure it today in different pockets. Um, the United States is quite safe, but other places in the world are not. And so the tribulation started with the early church, and it continues until today. And I think that is another important thing to consider as you go through the book of Revelation. We'll conclude there and pick up next time 